we're in a series right now um, called Grow to Go, and it's really looking at giving a reason for the hope that's within us and looking at some of those issues. How many of you like to hike? Anyone like to hike out here? I love to hike. We got a lot of hikers. We're next door to John Muir Middle School, so I guess that it fits that we have a lot of hikers here. Some of you don't know who John Muir is. Don't look it up now. Put your smartphone down. Look it up later. But John Muir was a hiker, and uh, let's say you're out in the woods, you're hiking around, and you were to come across a beaver dam. Now, unless you're a cartoon person, it wouldn't really look like this, okay? But what this is is kind of an illustration of what what we know a beaver dam to be, and it's actually pretty intricate and pretty smart um, how that's that's done. If you were to come across a beaver dam, you would not look at the beaver dam and say, wow, there's been some crazy storms that put this together in just such a way to make a beaver dam. What would you think? You would think there's a beaver. Why? Because there's a beaver dam, right? You'd think that beaver put some work into that and made the beaver dam. Now, let's say you're hiking in a certain part of the country near our house, and you were to come across um, a trail, and you were to look and see this. What bridge is this? The Golden Gate Bridge. You better get that one. Golden Gate Bridge. You come across a, a, a bend, and you see this bridge, infinitely more complex than a beaver dam. What would you look at and see? Would you think that all kinds of metal and screws came together and paint and lighting and road striping just came, came together one day and kind of formed this? No, you wouldn't, right? What if lots and lots of time went by? Would it still come together? What if even more time than that were to happen? What if a hurricane came through and was throwing parts around that can actually put metal through metal? Would you then think it's true? No, no, no. You would look at this and you would say what? Someone designed this bridge. Someone wanted to get from this part to this part. There was water. They didn't have a boat. So they made a bridge, right? So you'd look at that and you'd think, man, there's a designer to that. Now you're there with your sweetie, okay? You younger kids, it's going to happen one day, maybe. But, but let's say you're there with your sweetie and you look into his or her eyes and you were to just check out their eye for a minute. Now, because you are an educated sort of chap out there hiking around and looking at things, you begin to realize as you look into your sweetie's eyes, you go, wow, the eyeball. Now, I know that's not very romantic, but this is the track you're on. You've just seen a beaver dam, so you're thinking there's got to be beavers that designed that. You've just seen a bridge. You think, man, there's got to be a designer of that bridge that put that all together, really smart people to, to, to hold that thing together. And then you're looking at your sweetie's eye and you notice the eyeball and hear the things that roll through your mind because you've studied it recently. You realize that the eyeball is the second most complex organ in the entire brain, uh, entire brain, entire body, except for the, that was a little slip to kind of help you out. I wish my teachers did that more. Um, so it's a really, really complex part of the body. Um, there are, there are over two million working parts to the eyeball. I don't know who counted that, but I'm taking their word for it. But it's a really complex body part. Did you know that your eyeball can distinguish between 500 shades of gray? One, one gray. You're going to see some gray colors on the screen today. Your eyeball is, is, is sorting through that. And all this information. And so what you look at with just an eyeball is you look at that person and you go, wow, there's a designer. There's a creator. You know what I'm getting at? I'm getting at really the first week of, of this, which was a few weeks back, where we looked at the fact that there simply is a God. And so to even begin to talk about, does God speak to us today through his word? We have to establish, is there a God? And we look at it, and whether we're hiking around seeing beaver dams or the Golden Gate Bridge or an eyeball in the mirror, we look at it and say, yes, there's a designer. Yes, there's a creator to this. Yes, there's a God. So that's where we, that's where we started things. But where we've been the last few weeks, and we really landed here, um, for three weeks. We're gonna wrap up the Bible section today, but we're gonna keep going with proofs for the faith, uh, um, shortly. But where we landed the last few weeks is this, that the Creator not only put us here, but, but the Creator speaks to us. And the Creator spoke through the Bible and continues to speak today through the Bible. Now I want you to imagine just for a minute with me, um, what it would be like if, if you were to see, if you witnessed this firsthand, that someone came in, authorities came in, and yanked a man very physically away from his wife and his two kids, and then put him in jail. And didn't just put him in jail for a day or two, but for 860 days now, have, have him in a jail. And his only crime, ready for this? His only crime is that he is 
the same thing that I am, a Christian pastor. A Christian pastor is evidently a crime in Iran. Some have been following this story. This is Pastor Yusuf. He's a Christian pastor in Iran. And that's exactly what happened to him, and that's a true story that he's been in jail now for over 860 days. He was asked by a judge to repent of his behavior. Pastor Yusuf responded very bluntly, Repent means to return. What should I return to, he asked. To the blasphemy that I had before my faith in Christ? The judge replied, to the religion of your ancestors, Islam. To which he replied, I cannot. Now, Pastor Yusuf is not alone. He is one of thousands of people in one country, Iran, that is being held captive or being abused or in some way being tortured for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's really simple. Let me boil it down to you. The Iranian Supreme Court says this. If he surrenders his faith, he will save his life. That's the Iranian Supreme Court. A lot of authority has been given to them in that country, right? If you recant, if you say, I was just kidding, I don't really believe in Jesus, then you'll save your life. I don't know what's running through Pastor Yusuf's brain, But Pastor Youssef and the images and the news stories coming out about him are reminding me to pray for brothers and sisters who every single day that you've been alive, there have been Christians around the world literally being tortured and martyred. That's a fancy word for being killed, for being a Christian. Very hard to figure that out in a country where we have freedom like we do, huh? But here's what I wonder if this is running somewhat through Pastor Yusuf's mind. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said these words, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus went on to say these words, If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Now, just based on simple observation, is the ultimate authority in Pastor Yusuf's life the words of Jesus as recorded in the Bible or the Iranian Supreme Court? Which one carries more weight in Pastor Yusuf's heart, mind, and life? Tell me. The Bible. How do you know? Because he has a choice before him right now. Hey, this can all end. You'll save your life. He doesn't buy it for a second. He says, no way, that's not, that's gotta be a lie because it doesn't match up with what I know to be true. Here's the question for us. Which one, which one carries more weight for us? Now you might look at it and easily say, well, I don't give, you know, too much credit to the Iranian Supreme Court over here. But what else could this be? We talked about ultimate authority last week a little bit. Does the Bible carry that kind of weight in your life? Here's the, here's the real question that we've been answering is, can I trust the Bible? These are some different cards that came in. We gave you opportunity to write down your questions. You've always had questions about the Bible. Write them down. As we're going to see today, we could keep doing this forever, and some people use this a little bit as a smoke screen to ever putting their trust in Christ. There's always one more card, isn't there? I mean, can't you just keep putting more cards? And when you're done, Office Max will sell you some more, and you could keep writing questions. And you know what you could do? You could just keep writing questions. What if your whole life were spent questioning at the end of it? You get to the end and go, wow, I should have trusted at some point. It can be a smokescreen to just constantly ask. But we're also not afraid of the questions. We want to address the questions. We're going to answer a few more today um, and then move on. I want to invite uh, my first reader up. This is Olivia Jones. Come on up, Olivia. And Olivia is going to read a passage for us, which is going to help us um, figure out uh, these next four. Here's the four questions we're going to tackle today. We're just doing four more. And then we're going to move on. So I want Olivia um, to go ahead and read. Okay. Philemon 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Thank you, Olivia. And Claire, come on up. This is Claire Nemec, and she's got a second passage. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches in Asia Minor send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla... Greet you warmly because of the Lord's love. So does the church that meets in their house. All right. Can we thank these two ladies? 
Thanks, you guys. Probably not many of you have memorized these verses. Um, I had to tell the parents of both of these. These are not the, it's not an error. You're going to be reading this passage, and you might think I, ga- I gave you the wrong address. Uh, here's, here's the first question we want to tackle, and this will be fairly quick. Are, are the common things inspired? We've maintained that this is an inspired divine book. To be an inspired divine book and to contain error would, would show that it's not divine, that, that God makes mistakes. God cannot err. And this is God's word, therefore the Bible is inerrant. That's where we get that word. So then someone comes along and asks something like this. Um, you know, do we, uh, do we take this get my cloak portion of scripture? Do we take these greetings, these kind of common elements? Are those inspired as well? And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at that very quickly. We've been offering proof that the Bible is a divine book. Here's what we haven't overemphasized much yet. It's also a human book. And you go, well, how could that be? Pick your, you know, it has to be divine or it has to be human. Really? Uh, was Jesus human or was he divine? Yes, that's exactly right. The, the, the answer is yes, right? So we look at that, we say, yeah, he's both. And, but, but how do you justify all that? Doesn't that raise all kinds of problems? It does somewhat for us. It's a little bit challenging. There are, there are parts of our brain that quite, can't quite get around that. It's a decent parallel for the Bible to say, is it a human book or is it a divine book? The answer is, is yes, that it's, that it's actually both. Here's what I mean by that. We've talked mostly about the fact that it's a divine book. We'll continue to talk about that. But let me just give you a few bits to show you it's also a human book. God chose to use ordinary people with ordinary speech and ordinary lives to deliver a divine message. Did you catch that? Ordinary people, ordinary speech, ordinary lives to deliver a divine or perfect message. How human is the Bible? Here's how human it is that language and literary forms differ from person to person. In other words, there's a writing style. If Nicole were to write a letter um, to her, her local congressman and Viv were to write a letter to her local congressman, um, there would be certain components that would, would probably reference this area and we'd see that this was in this time and place and this locale. But even their two personalities are, are very different, so they would have different kinds of styles to them. God used that. God used their individual personalities to write the Bible. Also, perspectives, thought patterns, and emotions. Think about the same two women. Do they both have emotions? Yes. Are they the same? Of course not. We're all different. So you see that. Some are very impassioned, and some are more even keel. And perspectives on things, even specific interests that come up and don't come up. Finally, we can go on and on with this, but but culture and circumstances. When someone says, bring my coat and the letters, or greet so-and-so, or I wish to visit you in a couple of months, or whatever else, those are simply verifications that these are real people, not writing in a vacuum somewhere, but these are real circumstances, really visiting the churches, really praying for brothers and sisters around the world, and and, and living lives, and God chose to reveal his word and will to them. It's not that different, really, from the prophets of old. So God comes to prophets, reveals himself, says, I want you to say this. He didn't at that moment somehow transform that person so that he's got a big booming voice, and all prophets saith thus. He didn't do that. He took that person as he was and, and used that person to speak. So it is with the Bible. Here's the powerful picture of this. God is still using regular, everyday people to deliver his timeless, perfect, and divine message. You know what's happening right now? Right now. God is using a very regular, everyday, ordinary person to teach and to preach and to deliver his divine message. That's a powerful thing. When you're sitting at at lunch break with someone and you're just sharing about your faith, you're giving a reason for the hope that is within you, you're discussing with someone, how on earth didn't you buckle under the pressure of the Iranian Supreme Court? And you just share with them simply, you know what? There's a higher authority that's so much over the Iranian Supreme Court and any Supreme Court all put together. It's, it's God. Let me, let me tell you about it. What you are is a regular, everyday person being used of God to deliver and share a timeless message. Powerful thought. Here's the second one. When were the chapters and verses added? 
Kind of an interesting side point. Most people don't deny Christ or not come to Christianity because of this. Um, but, but kind of an interesting thing. So we'll just take a minute or two on this. Um, I don't know if your name is Steve, Stephen, or Stephanus, or some variation of that. But if so, I would suspect that you have a heightened interest in this. Okay? Here's why. Uh, in 1227, a guy by the name of Stephen Langton, who's a professor at the University of Paris and later went on to become the Archbishop Bishop of Canterbury, added the chapters. Okay? The year's 1227. His name is Stephen. Track with me. Next, fast forward a few hundred years. The verses were added to the Bible in 1551 by Robert Stephanus. That's French for Stevens. Okay? He was a French printer. So, I would venture to guess, if you want your child to be really interested in chapters and verses of the Bible, name him Stephen. If it's a girl, Stephanie, or, you know, whatever. Kind of some variation of that. Maybe it'll track. I'm not positive about that. Um, here's the simple truth. When I went to ask these two readers to read, very, very easy. I said, go to these passages and read them. Can you imagine if we didn't have chapters and verses? How about where you live? When you describe where you live, you know what you can do? You can say, I live on such and such a street with, um, with this address. And people can whip out their phones and say, got it. It's right there. So all chapters and verses are is just an address. It's just an address to be easy to, to, to find it. It actually took a long time for, for these things to be added. Here's the point I want to make, though. The chapters and verses are not divinely inspired. They're tools of man to help us navigate the Bible. I bring that up because there are certain times where you'll be reading, and you'll kind of catch this if you're astute, and you're reading along and you say, wow, that kind of broke up the thought of where he was going. This seems like it's continuing the argument from the previous chapter. What I don't want you to do is wonder, huh, I wonder if the Bible's inspired or not. Those are, those are man-made and somewhat arbitrary. You could, you could sit there and debate where chapter breaks uh, and all of that should be. Moving on. Why are there no female authors in the Bible? Here's the answer. I don't know. <laughs> Simple. There's no Brazilian authors either. I don't know why God didn't use Brazilians. Um, but I, but, but there are no, there are no female authors in the Bible that, that we know of. There are two prominent books, Esther and Ruth, that are named after prominent godly women. Um, the writings or songs of, of, of women are recorded. Miriam and Mary are just two examples of that, where, where some things they sang are, are recorded in there. Um, and, and as you read through the scriptures, you see how elevated Jesus brought and God brought through the whole of Scripture to the role of women and to women and all of that in general. But the answer is quite simply, I don't really know. I want to invite the band up. We're going to sing a little bit more. We're going to tackle the last question. We've already nailed three. So you're like, sweet, things are moving. One of these is a doozy. We're going to take some time with it, okay? I'll just I'll give you the heads up on that. Um, but we're going to sing some more. Let me just give you this, that the more knowledge you gain, the more you must learn to live with all kinds of questions. Okay? So part of a Christian's lifestyle is to learn to walk by faith. Does that mean we chuck reason, thinking, and logic at the door? Absolutely not. In fact, the more reasonable and logical you are, the more you dive into this stuff, the more the world opens up where you say, wow, there's so much more I don't even know about. Right? Think about the eyeball example really quick. If you're a primitive person, you don't have any understanding of the eye, you just know, wow, there's probably some crazy cool things happening with the eye. When you start to look at mirrors and reflectors and lenses, you go, wow, I wonder if that matches my eye somehow. And then you were to just start to study the eyeball. You know what would happen? You'd get more and more questions the, the deeper you go. So it's okay to have questions. great to have questions. We're trying to crank out some of the most common ones. Let's sing some more. <clears throat> All right. This last question we're going to look at. Um, how do we know we have the right books included in our 66-book library of books, the Bible, Today, so that's a question that I hope that you've wondered about, um, and probably have uh, in the past. What we're talking about, another way of asking this, uh, the fancy way of asking this, is the canon, canonization process. That's your Scrabble of the Word week for this week. I gave you one last week. Look it up. Um, basically, who chose the books? Who were who were the ones that chose the books for this? Uh, a follow-up question or kind of a tie into this that we got a couple weeks back was, did the authors know that they were writing the Bible at the time? 
So that's what we're going to kind of dive into right now. The word canon, by the way, C-A-N-O-N, is a word that means read, and it's really just used as a measuring rod. So it was a, it was a measuring rod or a standard. So when someone says the canon of Scripture, they're saying this standard Scripture that we're talking about. We discussed a little bit that there's been a war on God's word from the very beginning. Remember in, in Genesis, as we read, that... Um, Adam and Eve are there, and the serpent is is filled with Satan, essentially. It's not that all snakes are Satan, but Satan basically goes into a snake and basically asks this question, did God really say? Remember that? So what that is, is that's casting doubt, and that is planting in the heart and minds of people the word of God. And what happens with that little exchange as you begin to to, to dialogue in that is all of a sudden you have Eve who is actually misquoting God, leaving parts of things that God said out and actually adding to it. And along comes hubby Adam who wasn't there and should have been and he does the same things. And people have been distorting God's word ever since. So there's been a war on God's word. We don't take a surprise to that. But let me just say this, that through the centuries there has been vast and widespread agreement about the book that you're holding in your hands called the Holy Bible. Now, is it a good thing that in recent years, by by recent years, I mean in the last couple of lifetimes, really, through all of history, in the last couple of lifetimes alone, has there really started to be some critique and some, some question about some of this? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Again, you can kind of have your own opinion. I know that God has sovereignly allowed that to go on. Some of it's been very, very good because it's allowed us to really challenge and question it. But I want you to know that for the vast majority of time, there's been widespread unity amongst Christians through the ages on the Bible. The Bible was written through inspiration. We actually just sang, we just alluded to that by this Holy Spirit breathe on me kind of an idea. Um, the Holy Spirit illuminated and inspired people to write the Bible. And do you know that for you to understand the Bible, you actually need the Holy Spirit to illuminate it for you. That's why you can go through and read the Bible. Maybe some of you tried this. You tried reading the Bible. It didn't make any sense. Your life got right with Jesus, and all of a sudden you read the same exact Bible. You didn't even switch versions. You didn't switch physical books in your hand. And all of a sudden it's coming alive to you. You're going, wow, where was that last time? That's the Holy Spirit um, illuminating for you the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21 says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What we're talking about here is this carrying along by the Holy Spirit. What about other people who say they're speaking for God? A prophet is tested. I brought up Harold Camping a couple of weeks ago. There are plenty of others. You go and investigate the evidence. If they're really from God, they should have a 1,000% batting average. Are we, are we tracking with that, right? Thus saith the Lord. You can't backtrack from that. So it should be perfect. 2 Timothy 3.16 applies here as well. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We're looking at what this carried along by the Holy Spirit component is and what it is to, to breathe out. How did the Holy Spirit breathe out? It would be very arrogant of me to stand up here and say, let me explain in the 20 minutes that I have left this concept. Okay? I'm not going to speak for the Holy Spirit in that way. But I do want to point your mind and show you some things that I hope will be helpful. This is a hugely important question, by the way. Not just for you if you're a Christian in this room today to build your life on, but but to answer and be ready to answer with other people. It is not only a legitimate question that someone could come and say, look, there's lots of other holy books. How do you know that was put together? Jesus didn't put this book together together in bodily form when he was here because we know much of it was written after Jesus walked the earth. So who put this together? How do we know we have the right words? To trifle with this is to keep us from knowing and understanding what God commands. Listen to Deuteronomy 4.2. Just listen for a second. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Did you hear that? 
Do not take away, do not add to the word of the Lord. And we looked last week that God providentially, right at the end of your Bible, says not to add or take away from the revelations in this book. Here's what I want you to do. Um, Some of you wonder, what is the benefit to having a physical Bible versus a smartphone Bible or an iPad app Bible? Here it is. You're about ready to discover it. I want you to find the Old Testament and grab it. The easiest way to do that is find Matthew 1 and turn a page to your left. Okay? So I want you to take the Old Testament in your hand, and I just want you to hold it in your fingers. It's okay to have the introduction and the maps a little bit, something like that, just roughly. Okay? Here's mine. I've got the Old Testament in my hands right here. So I want you to separate that out, and I want you to hold it in your fingers for a minute. Here's why. We're going to be talking specifically for the next couple of seconds about the Old Testament specifically. Okay? This is going to go very, very quickly, so you've got to track with me. Here it is. First of all, the Old Testament started with ten commandments literally written by the finger of God. Okay? We, we read that in, in, uh, in Exodus 31. That God wrote on tablets, gave them to Moses. So the Bible started, actually, with the finger of God writing on stone. That's a miracle, right? That's a miracle. Moses wrote additional words to be kept alongside the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. See Deuteronomy 31. The first five books of the Bible are those words that he wrote. Now, did he write other words? Quite possibly. In fact, we're pretty sure he did. But these are the five that that are the commands of the Lord that we just read about in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now Joshua comes along, watch this, Joshua comes along and he adds to it after Moses died. If you want these references, I'll tell you later on. I didn't write any of these in the notes for you, but Joshua 24, 26. Now this is incredibly surprising in light of what Moses just said. Do not add to the commands of the Lord. Don't take away from the commands of the Lord. Because if you do either one of those, you're getting a skewed message. The only way that Joshua, it would seem to me, would add to the commands of the Lord is is if he was a thousand percent convinced this was the authoritative word of God and that he should write this down and add to it. You track him with that? Read about Joshua. He followed in the path. He was wanting to honor God with this. Why? He would not take his eternal soul into jeopardy by doing this. God had authorized Joshua. That's why he wrote and added to the command of the Lord. Let's keep going. The Acts of King David are written down. This is 1 Chronicles 29, 1 Samuel 10, 2 Chronicles 32. These are written down and added to it. Thus says the Lord is found repeatedly in the Scriptures. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. That's Jeremiah 30. So when God wants to add to his book, he makes it really crystal clear. And he says, write this down. This is from God. And so that's what he does all through the Old Testament. Now, with your fingers still holding your Old Testament, I hope, here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to see. That in uh, the New Testament, as you read through the New Testament, here's what you will not find about the Old Testament. We see nothing but complete agreement between Jesus and the Jews and the people that are even his enemies. They're all in complete agreement about what the canon of Scripture is for the Old Testament. There's no dispute in there that says, well, but that book shouldn't even be in there. Powerful. Powerful evidence. Think about it. Read your New Testament and realize, well, that's, that, that's never been in question. That's the Old Testament. Okay. Now, grab your New Testament. Here it is. Smaller, right? So your New Testament, we're going to talk about that for a second. The New Testament became fixed in 367 A.D., 367 years after Christ walked the earth. It was when Athanasius listed the 27 books in a letter. Okay, that's kind of the first track record we see that's written down. It was confirmed in 397, so 30 years later, at a church council in Carthage. That's where they got together and confirmed what, what was already written down. Here's the, here's the deal I want you to think about though. That year, 397, probably won't be that important to you, but you know what? These are historical things we can go back and research and look at. It might, it might help get over the hump someone who's going, yeah, but, but when did all this happen? Wasn't it, wasn't it, isn't it true that that was added thousands of years later or 1500 years later, at, at, you know, totally different from, no. It was within a few hundred years and all that that council was doing was confirming what was already true. 
they were recognizing what was already going on. Well, what was already going on? That a collection of specific books was widely distributed and widely regarded by the early church as God's authoritative word. That's what went on in that situation. Now, what was the criteria used? You can let go of your New Testament if you want. Uh, what was the criteria used to recognize whether it was divine or not? Here's kind of the threefold picture very quickly. First of all, was it apostolic in origin? Did an apostle write this, or was it under the direct supervision of an apostle? What's an apostle with a capital A? It's someone who actually walked with Jesus, spoke with Jesus, was there. Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. Why? What do you think? There's probably a few reasons. He used to kill Christians. That's right. So Paul is a little bit different than the other apostles in that Jesus on the Damascus Road, remember that? He revealed himself to him, said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and he becomes a Christian. But, but these are apostles, capital A apostles. We don't have capital A apostles today. They didn't walk with Jesus, get this word directly from Jesus. That's, that's the apostolic origin component of this. Secondly, was this letter or book used and recognized by the churches? Keep in mind, these books were not written. These letters were not written in a vacuum. They had context to them. They had other people there that, that were, that were involved in this. Um, it was referred to as scripture while people were still alive. So some people ask, did people know they were writing the Bible at the time they were writing it? I would say some did and some didn't. Some, while they're still alive, are appealing to other letters that Paul wrote as divine authoritative scripture. So yes, I think there are times when it's very clear. Other times it might be, I know this is worth the Lord. That part was unmistakable. I didn't know I was actually writing the Bible. People will come and contend, though. People didn't even know they were just writing a letter to their friends, and then someone came along later on and said, that's the Bible. Not true. Not true. Look at the internal evidence of the book. Finally, number three is this. Does it teach sound doctrine? There are those who were tortured and suffering for this message. And along comes a book or letter, and they say, if that's going to be in there, it better jive with what I'm suffering for and the message that I've received. Paul himself said this, if you receive a gospel other than this, even if it comes from an angel, don't buy it. Don't buy it. There's going to be all kinds of other messages that are coming. So the third, the third criteria is, does this teach sound doctrine? And there were others around who said, yes, we look at that and agree. That is how it happened. That is the message we were taught. That is the message of salvation. Absolutely. And that's part of what was being looked at. Now, I want to just show you a little uh, picture here. Some of you guys like pictures, and um, so I'll, I'll give you one. Here, here it is. The vast acceptance, um, uh, most of them, in, in that little red dot, that's probably really hard to read, okay? But in that little red dot is this. The four Gospels, the book of Acts, the 14 letters of Paul, 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation. There was vast and absolute acceptance from the time they were written that those were to be in the canon, that those were to be in the Bible. Okay, So what we're talking about when we describe this and argue about the, the nuances are actually a relatively small amount of books. Um, some of you watch American Idol, Dancing with the Stars, um, so you think you could dance those kinds of shows. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I'm way too nice for that. But some of you watch them. I know. Now... As you're watching American Idol, I'll use that one as an example. As you're watching American Idol, is it safe to say that those three judges that are judging people singing for America to get on a singing show, which is going to supposedly crown the next greatest American singer, is it safe to say that the vast majority of them are not actually disqualified by the judges, but they disqualify themselves? Okay? Have you ever watched the tryout portion of these shows? I mean, there are so many that you look at and say, I'm mostly tone deaf, and I can tell that person shouldn't be on the show. They, they, they disqualify themselves just by getting up and opening their mouth. It's not The judges didn't even have an, a hard decision on that one. Here's what I want to say about this. As you look historically, what about the books that weren't included? Someone has said there are thousands of Gospels 
written about Jesus Christ. Enough time's gone by that, I, I, okay, maybe there were. Because we've had 2,000 years to, to write about this. Now, the vast majority of those, I read from you a tiny portion of the Gospel of Thomas, written a couple of hundred years later. Remember Steve Jobs with flaming red hair and snowboarding? Right? We look at that in today's day and age, in the context today, we say, eh, you got it wrong. Combining Sean White and Steve Jobs, not the same person. You are totally off on that. In 200 years, someone comes along and says, well, who says? How do you know? Right? Well, we could say 100 witnesses said. Well, but who, who knows if those were credible 100 witnesses? So, so that's, the, that's somewhat the problem that, that, that years add. But let me just say this, that for the vast majority of books that were submitted, they, uh, they basically discredited themselves. I want to invite the band up because in just a moment we're going to sing another song called Word of God Speak. And as they do, I want to speak just for a second on the Apocrypha. How about the Apocryphal books found in most Catholic Bibles? What about those? Those were written from the end of the, New Te- of the Old Testament age to the beginning of uh, to, to the birth of Christ. It was in that called intertestament period. What about those books? Let me just say this. I do not believe those are authoritative or divine. I believe that those are historical and some of them are helpful to help fill out a picture. But the reason they are not in your Bible in this room probably is because they are, they are not Scripture. Well, who says? Let me just show you a couple of facts very quickly. They were officially declared canon. Remember that? They were up to standard, up to the measuring read. Listen to this. In 1546, 1,500 years later, not 297 years later, but 1,500 years later, and they were declared as such by the Roman Catholic Church. They were actually in in response to a guy named Luther who was protesting things. And these apocryphal books actually kind of supported the Catholic Church position. We talked last week that for some people, the ultimate authority is tradition or a church statement and not God's word. We don't believe that. Finally, listen to this. The Old Testament... In the New Testament, okay, this is quoted by this some 295 times. So as you're reading your Bible and there's a little tiny A or 1 next to your word, you know what that probably means? It means that you need to look down to the bottom and see, oh wow, that's Jesus. He's actually quoting scripture right here. That's found in Isaiah. Jesus keeps quoting the Old Testament. The New Testament authors quote the Old Old Testament. You know what the early church fathers did? They quoted the Bible. You know what I do all the time? I quote the Bible. If you move away from here or leave this church, go to a Bible that quotes the Bible. That's what we want. You don't really care what I think. You want to know what does the Bible think. Here's the thing. 295 times the New Testament is quoted in the Old Testament. You know how many times the Apocrypha is quoted in the New Testament? Take a guess. Zero. Zero times. It was there by the New Testament times. Food for thought. You go and research it yourself. Um, here's, here's the final point before we sing. Books don't become inspired by being included. They're merely being recognized what's already there. Doesn't it stand to reason that God wants you to have his message? Doesn't it? Doesn't it take faith to say, well, God, you used... Imperfect people, though, to write your word. True statement. Can God use imperfect people to do perfect things? Absolutely. He can. Can God use an imperfect council at Carthage to do an imperfect thing of setting a standard and collecting and saying, this is done. We're not talking about this anymore. Yes, and he did. God wants you to have his message, and he's given you his message. Now, The person you're talking to, if they are not a believer, if they have not put their trust in Christ, if they haven't looked at this, here's what you need to do then at that point. You need to say, look, faith trusts, reason assesses. Use your reason to assess the things I'm telling you. It's all out in the open. Research it. And then at some point, trust in what's going on. Here's what I believe. I think at some point, it's time to step onto the Bible as a viable foundation or at least be honest about why you're not trusting the Bible. Sometimes it has nothing to do with more 3 by 5 cards. 
you know what, if I just had a thousand more three by five cards and could get those answered, then we'd be good. You know what, there might be some other issues going on with that. All right, here's, here's just a few closing thoughts that I have, um, some words for us. We've been looking at this for, for a few weeks. We're going we're gonna to move on after this. And um, <clears throat> can I trust the Bible is, is what we've been looking at. Uh, can I trust the Bible actually leaves the burden of proof. It leaves the action in someone else's court, doesn't it? Hey, can I trust the Bible? That's like having other people, you need to prove it to me. You need to get to me. Here's what the, here's what the Bible demands. God demands a response. So that can I trust the Bible actually turns into this. Will I trust the Bible? Will I trust the Bible? Not can I, like hypothetically can it happen, but, but will I, will you trust the Bible? Now many have been convinced over the, over the years, and I've watched this happen firsthand with many, many people, that a carabiner and a rope can hold the body weight of, of, a, of a person. Okay, you, can be, you can have that demonstrated before, before your very eyes. You could watch it happen over and over. And if you ask the person, do you have any reason to doubt that this equipment will hold your body and keep you from plummeting to the rocks below? They'll say, absolutely not. It's different, though, to say, I'm going to clip in, step off of a ledge, and place my full weight into that. Right? Tracking with that? Some of you have been there. Some of you on the women's retreat were there. Right? Okay? And there's, there's, there's sweaty palms right now as you're thinking about that. I know, Patty, I know. So, so you've been there in real life. Now, here's, here's the question. You know intellectually it will hold you. You have no doubt about that. Why won't, why won't you step out and trust? Answer me. What is it? Fear. Fear of what? The unknown. Sharp rocks. Right? I mean, just... It's just fear, basically. Listen, just listen to Psalm 128.1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. True statement, or it's not. That's, that's, that's binary. That's either true or it's not. Oswald Chambers said this, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. You talk to someone long enough, here's what you begin to see. Their fears. I'm afraid my career is going to go away like my cubicle mate. I'm afraid my marriage might fall apart. I'm afraid my kids are going to wander away from what I've taught them. I'm so afraid I'm going to die. You hear it? I mean, this comes out in our conversations, right? And what we fear. I'll tell you a really common fear. People fear other people's opinions about themselves. They fear man instead of fearing God. You know who's a terrible taskmaster? Other people's opinions. Cruel taskmaster. Horrible thing to be enslaved to is to constantly be in fear of other people. God frees us from that. Where does Pastor Yusuf get the courage, the boldness, and the confidence to sit on death row and continue to maintain? I've got to go with what God says. Versus any Supreme Court, my own country or anyone else. I'll tell you what it is. It's God, the Holy Spirit, working through Him. Because God, working through us, makes us more than conquerors. Offers us life forevermore. Gives us the assurance at the point that we have need that we're never outside of His watchful eye and never outside of His care. Powerful truth. One last question is this. Will others trust the Bible because of you? This series really is about grow to go. Grow in your faith and your understanding so that you can give it away. You know what's coming up Easter? You know what's significant about that aside from the fact that we celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and the new life we have because of that truth? Here's the other significant fact. Many of the people that you will interact with this coming week will attend church somewhere will attend a place of worship somewhere on Easter. They'll be drawn to it. They're the, the twice-a-year people, right? They come on Christmas, they come on Easter. Some of, some of you were that way, and now we've started to see you around here a lot more. That's great. Grow to go says this. Are you loving them enough? Are you seeing them through God's eyes enough that you would go to them? 
that you'd, that you'd give your very life away to them. Jude 3 says this, Beloved, although I eagerly, I very eagerly want to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I'm challenging you, church. Contend for the faith. Defend the faith. Now, here's probably the biggest missing component. Just a hunch. Perhaps the biggest missing component to our defense of the Christian faith, here it is, is that you're hanging out with the wrong people. When people think about hanging out with the wrong people being said from a church pulpit, a Christian church pulpit, here's what I think their brain goes to. Oh, you mean like those drug dealers. Oh, you mean like the sexually immoral. Oh, you mean like that greedy swindler. Oh, you mean like the glutton or the gossip or all of those people. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. When I say that the biggest missing component of us contending for our faith is that we're hanging out with the wrong people, I mean other Christians. It's probably been true of your experience that the longer you have been a Christian, think about this in your own life, the longer you've been a Christian, the less Christians you hang out with. Does that track with how your life's gone? Most people, as time goes on, they were around a lot of non-Christians, and now it's been 20 years, and they're around very, very few non-Christians. Don't you like hanging out with people who agree with you? Don't you love hanging out with people who have the same values as you? Don't you love being in fellowship like this? That's why we meet for church every week. Don't miss it! If you're hanging around the right people as a Christian, you will long to come to church every single Sunday. See, i got to get with my peeps! i got to be with people who love me and understand me and know what I'm talking about! I've got to be here at church. Can't wait for the welcome lunch. I need time with Christians. Some of you could take or leave church. You know why? you got Christian fellowship all through the week. Totally inverted. We're told to be ready to give an answer for the, a, a reason for the hope that is within us. The problem is a lot of people aren't asking. Now, some have used this method. I don't know if you've cruised around wearing a button like this, but it might be a valuable exercise. Unless you're walking around with an Ask Me About Jesus button on your shirt, most people don't walk up and say, I'm pretty sure you're a Christian. I want to know the reason for the hope you have. Do you have anything for me? Most people don't do that. Some people, I bet if I wore that button, I bet 90% of the people who came and talked to me would be in one of two camps. They absolutely hate Christians and love to get in and just, I'm going to kneel as Christian. Or, who would they be? Give me a hallelujah high five, brother, right here. I'm with you. I don't want to talk to you. That's not why I'm wearing this button. So I don't think the button thing really works that well, to be totally honest. I really don't. I think that hanging out with the right people as a Christian is what it is. And getting to know them and getting to love them and getting to value them. I was in a conversation recently with someone, and I totally blew it. I began to talk about them. I know this. I've experienced this. I've witnessed this. I praise God for this. But I began to talk to them about a very serious, deep spiritual matter. And the second that I asked them a question, it's like a quarterback snapping the ball. Hike! I gave them permission. I said, I'm here for you. I want to listen to you. They hiked the ball. They dropped back. You know what I did? Cornerback blitz. Some of you know football. You're like, man, that's terrible. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Here's what it means. He's dropping back. I came from this side. He couldn't even see me coming. I came and I ran as hard as I could. Bam! I stripped the ball away. I flattened this person on the ground, and I grabbed the ball, and I was off running defending the faith. You know what I needed to do? I repented to my God first. I said, God, I'm sorry about that. You didn't need that. That was not the right move in that situation. Was I zealous? Yes. Did I deeply care about this person? More than you could possibly imagine. But something in me triggered where I'm like, i got to get the ball, and i got to get it to the touchdown. And what it did was it actually has backtracked our relationship a bunch. Not only did I apologize to my God and say, God, I'm sorry, it's not what you need from me. I went to the person and I said, listen, so what I just displayed to you is really great in football and really terrible in our relationship. I'm sorry. I just apologized. I was very humble about it. It was very sincere. It was with tears. And I just said, I'm really, really sorry. 
I want to value you as a person. I want to listen to you. I want to understand. Can we try again? This person's been gracious, and we're, and we're, we're picking it back up. That's what people need from you. They don't need a hand grenade over your little church wall. Just little truth grenades. You're chucking them. I'm a witness for Jesus. No, you're not. You're not. You know what you're, you're immersed. You're just killing people. Don't do that. You know what happens? Those of us wanting to be missionaries are having to come along and pick up people saying, but Christians are terribly mean. They just chuck their truth at me. They just cornerback blitz me. We're going to sing a little bit more in a second, but first I want to do something that I believe God just wants us to do. We're going to, we're going to do what we just sang about. We just said, let my words be few. I don't want to talk. I just want to hear from you, God. And um, in a second, here's what I want you to do. If, if you are in this room and you say, I just need, I need help. God, I need to know what to do. I need to know what direction to go. God, I don't know why I have a mistrust of you and your word. I actually know deep down it's true. But I'm struggling to trust you. In just a second, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand up right where you are. It's going to take some faith to do that. Here's what's going to happen after that. I want to just have us as a church body silently before our God to pray for the people standing. Maybe like Job, you could be one of Job's friends. One of the good things they did, I believe, is that for seven days they came and sat with their friend in utter silence. Didn't offer advice. Didn't offer up an eloquent prayer. They just sat in silence. We're going to stand next to our brothers and sisters in silence. And just be with them. Maybe the whole church is going to stand up. And no one's left to stand next to you. You know what? The Holy Spirit's with us in this room, isn't he? So right now, with no shame to admit need, stand up right where you are and say, I need to know, God, what's happening in my life. I need a word from you. I need to trust this book like I've never trusted it before. Stand up right now and the rest of the church You're welcome to look around, and we're just going to silently pray. I know there's more than one person that needs to stand up. Look around and just pray. And in a minute, you're going to hear God's word read. I'm not going to close in prayer. We're going to just listen to God's word. Others of you need to go and just stand with these people in silence. Come and just put a hand on them and just stand with them. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this. The power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord... Belongs steadfast love.